This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mix in just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries. Hey. Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Welcome to midweek episode five of Hillbilly Horror Stories. Hello there. So yeah, <laughs> you had that same shirt on last night. Well, I only wore it once. What's your problem, <laughs> punk? <laughs> okay, well, tonight's show we have special guest T.S. Mart. And Mel Cobb, and they are a mother-daughter team. Mom being T.S. March, she's the author. Oh, cool. And Mel Cobb is a monster designer, creature designer, technically is the term. Well, that's very cool. So she does all the drawing and illustration for Mm -hmm. the books, and they do books on cryptids. And they've got a book on Bigfoot's coming out in about a year. And they're going to come on the show and tell us some cool stories, some cryptid stories, talk to us about um, the book a little later. They have a website called Cryptid World. That's pretty cool. That's all cryptids. Mm-hmm. So for you cryptid freaks out there that claim I don't do enough stuff, um, here you go. Now suck on that. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously with doing cryptids on the interview, I thought tonight's story would have nothing to do with cryptids. Oh. So we did nothing with cryptids. You're so mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it does. It is a Kentucky story tonight, though. Oh well, there you go. So those of you in the Bowling Green area, which is uh, Corvette City, yeah, if you're unfamiliar with the layout of the land of Kentucky, it's uh, not too far from Nashville, Tennessee. This story came from a man in the Bowling Green area, or at least he lived there at the time. I don't know if he still lives there or not. His name is Seamus Coffee. I've never seen this name before. S e a m u s Coffee. Nice. Different. So this is more, this isn't going to be like a haunted story, more or less. It's going to be a personal account of what happened to him on one incident. So we don't do a whole lot of those. Okay. Can't wait to hear about it. This was several years ago, and and I don't have the actual year, but Seema states that he was about 20 years old at the time, and he was in his freshman year of college. He was... I will say this, though. It, it wasn't that that long ago because I know they called 911 from the cemetery. Oh. So they had to have had cell phones. Oh, true, true. So it wasn't so that not, long ago. not back in the, you know, yeah, it wasn't like in the Yeah, it wasn't like in the 50s or the 60s <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I went way far back. <laughs> <laughs> like it wasn't like your birth year. This was... <laughs> you suck. <laughs> Anyway, he says he's about 20 years old. He was his freshman year of college. And he had like an agnostic view. Some people thought he was an atheist, but Mm -hmm. he wasn't an atheist. He was agnostic. And he just... Maybe that just means he liked eggnog. That's that's agnostic. Not agnostic. Oh. (laughs) Do you know what agnostic means? No. 
agnostic means that that I would put myself in that category. It's saying that you don't necessarily believe that there's a God, but you don't believe that there's necessarily not one either. You're kind of on the fence. Oh. You see enough stuff where you think maybe, but... Well, come on over the fence there, buddy. Well, we'll get into my religious beliefs at a totally different time. When By that, I mean never. <laughs> <laughs> because it would take me all day to explain what I believe, and 99% of the people would say, well, how in the world can you believe that? And the other... You know, 1% would be right on, brother, mm. except for that one part. So it's just, there's no point in getting yeah, into All it. right. Well, I'll quit interrupting you. Are you sure? Yes. Because, you know, we got all night. Hey. The, you know, we were pre-recorded TS Mart, so she's not waiting on us. Anyways, so anyways, it's his freshman year. He doesn't believe in ghosts either at this point. Mm-hmm. And he says even at the time he wrote this, he's still not sure he believes, which it's going to be one of those situations. You're going to be like, how the hell, buddy? How the hell do you not believe? But After anyways, this, yeah. So there was this young lady named Camille that he had this huge crush on. She was Wiccan. He found her to be a little different than most other girls, but not necessarily because of religion. It was because of how she dressed. Oh, okay. She wore a pentacle uh, pendant. Mm -hmm. And then she wore mostly all black clothing. Her hair was dyed black. She had black fingernail polish. So what most people would consider to be goth. And he even said she was more like the goth girls Mm -hmm. that he knew from high school. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where it was. So one night she invited him and and some other friends to go ghost hunting with her. And he was all in, obviously, because it was an excuse to hang out with this girl he had a crush on. Yeah. So there was three others that were coming along. There was a young lady by the name of Sam and two other guys named Sean and Kobe. They're in the car. They're going up to um, the cemetery, and it's called Fairview Cemetery in Bowling Green. Everybody was talking about the weird vibe they get from the cemetery, except for Seamus, who didn't believe in all that stuff, Mm -hmm. so he didn't want to kill the mood, so he just mainly just shut up and didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. So Fairview Cemetery was an old Civil War cemetery. Bowling Green was actually the Confederate state capital during the Civil War back in the day. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, back during the Civil War, um, you had your regular capital, mm-hmm. but then you also had the Confederate capital. So it's like they seceded for a couple of years from the United States and was their own little... Their own thing. Yeah. And the city still actually uses this cemetery today. So, I mean, there's still room to put people and oh, stuff Oh, wow. Like that. That's... Dang. Must be huge. Yeah. So the main gate to the cemetery closes at dusk. Uh, so Camille had to use a back road, like a little service road, to get into a very much older part of the cemetery. So they get in, they're parked, everybody gets out of the car, and Seamus notices that Camille, at this point now, as soon as she gets out of the car, she had grasped her pendant. She and grabbed her pendant? Yeah, Is she that what grasped you said? it, okay. was holding it mm-hmm. in her hand, and she's walking around the graves, and the whole time she's like kind of talking to herself under her breath. Mm-hmm. Like, where are you? I don't know if she's saying that, but oh. I'm sure it was something a little more deep than that. <laughs> Where Six are you? I'm sorry. Where what? are you? <laughs> I was trying to go deeper. Where are you? <laughs> the, the other thing that Seamus noticed is that Sean and Kobe were very disrespectful. Oh. They were running around, stepping all over graves oh, and, man, and being loud cool. and stuff like that. Not cool. So Seamus followed Camille, and then Sam, the, the young lady, was following closely behind him. And he said it was really obvious that out of everybody there, she was the most kind of scared. Oh, Sam Sam. was? So Uh she was just kind of following everybody real close. 
They go to the back of the cemetery and they find this bench that was on a marble base. It's a marble bench, marble mm-hmm. base. He said it was some kind of a like a shrine to a Catholic saint, but he didn't know which saint. He just didn't pay attention. He sits down on the bench and he immediately notices that there's a, this huge tree about 50 feet straight across. Mm-hmm. I mean, he said it's as wide, the tree trunk on it was as wide as a car. Oh. And it was so tall that you couldn't see the top of it because uh, it was really it was really dark. Oh, dang. So he's, he's sitting there, and then he also notices that underneath the tree, there's all these rows of smaller headstones. And they were, they were way smaller than any of the other ones that they'd seen in the rest of the cemetery. So Camille was, was shouting at Kobe and Sean because they were peeing on a headstone. <gasps> Stop it. The same headstone. They were both peeing on the same headstone. I would punch them in their face. That's so awful. Seamus runs up because he hears all this little commotion. I guess he was out kind of wandering around fairly close, but he runs up because he hears the commotion and he notices that on the headstone that they were peeing on, there was an epitaph on it that said he was a good Negro. Mm-hmm. So Seamus learned two things at, at this time. The first thing he learned, learned was this was a slave graveyard. Mm. Very old. Mm-hmm. And then the second was that Kobe and Sean were, in fact, racist. And that's why they were peeing on the headstone. Oh, my gosh. Let me get a hold of them. About that time, a very strong wind came from basically nowhere. The tree started shaking really bad because of the the wind, and a large limb actually fell off from one of the branches up there, and it hit Kobe in the shoulder and knocked him to the ground right into his own pee. Good. Damn it, that's what you get. (laughs) So Camille laughed. And she said that's what he got for being disrespectful to the spirits. I can't even imagine somebody doing that. So Sean and Kobe, though, were jerks, as you can imagine already. So they get up, and they start yelling and kicking over headstones. Just going over, kicking kicking them all over. Probably wasn't that hard, considering how old some of these probably were. Oh, man. So they were yelling to the spirits to come out and play. At that time, the wind picked up again. This time, though, it blew all the clouds away from the moon, where now there's light in the cemetery. They said it was so light that it was shortly after midnight, but it looked like it was dawn. You could oh my see gosh. everything that was really well lit. Seamus realized that he hadn't seen Camille or Sam in a little while. So he turns around to look and see where they are, and he spots them sitting on that marble bench mm-hmm. that we talked about from earlier. Their faces were in a state of horror. This is what he said. He said the hair stood up on the back of his neck when he spotted it. Halfway between him and the girls was a small black child. Her clothes were tattered. Aww. And he said he pointed his flashlight towards her and she disappeared. He moved the flashlight and she reappeared. So it's like as long as there was no wow. light on her, you could see her. Aww. So he walks up towards her and he, he asks her name. And as soon as he got right to her and he went to put his hand on her shoulder, she darted off and ran right behind a headstone. Now, Camille and Sam were looking in fear in his direction, but they weren't looking at him. They were looking past him. Oh, my God. What was it? They were looking back where Sean and Kobe were. They were knocking down more headstones and and shouting racial slurs. I hate them. What Kobe and Sean didn't notice were all the spirits. (gasps) 
Ooh, did they kill them? You see, there were there were there were spirits of black children in tattered clothing and empty looks on their faces, standing by almost every destroyed headstone. Aww. But then there was a figure that came out from the group. It was a seven foot tall man. Good. I hope they whooped. He whipped their butts. They, he said he was as wide as a uh, a door frame. Holy this guy crap! Was huge. Said he walked towards Sean and Kobe and stopped right in front of them. They didn't see him though. I don't know if they could see him. So he stops right in front of them. They're getting ready to to knock over another headstone. This huge specter of a man. He put his massive foot behind the stone. Sean kicked the headstone, but it didn't budge. So he decided to jump in the air and with two feet, kick it. Nothing. So finally, he got a running start and he jumped into the headstone. The headstone broke, but it caused Sean to fall to the ground. Because, you know, he's Mm kind of at an angle. He falls to the ground, slamming his face into another headstone that they had previously knocked over. Good. You could hear the thump of his face hitting the stone all over the cemetery. Kobe freaks out, and he starts walking backwards and fell right over top of another headstone and hit his head on the back of a different headstone. Oh, my gosh. Camille called 911. Sam, Seamus, and Camille kind of stood at that same bench we were talking about while the other two boys were taken away on an ambulance. Seema said he never saw Sam again, and Camille never wanted to talk about that night again. But Sean and Kobe had both went to the hospital and suffered massive concussions. Sean had a a skull fracture. Oh, my gosh. But both of the boys lived. So here's a twist to the story. Seamus, by appearance, he said, looks white. His grandmother, though, was biracial. His great-grandfather had a very uncommon last name. And you remember the little girl that he saw, Mm -hmm. the first one? Mm Mm-hmm. He said she darted behind a headstone. Yeah. Well, the headstone next to her had the exact same last name as his great-grandfather. That was unusual. Seamus's family had lived in Kentucky since the Civil War, and his great-great-grandmother was a slave whose first child passed away. She was a young girl in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Oh, my gosh. So that's possible that that was his ancestor. I think we need to go to that grave site, and we need to put flowers and all that stuff. I wouldn't mind checking it out next time we go to Lake Nashville. I, you know, that breaks my heart that people do that stuff. What I mean, what do you get out of doing that? What? What? I mean, it just pisses me off. Those poor people, bless her hearts, I just want to hug them all. And then I want to find those two boys and kick them in their nuts. (laughs) That's very loving of you. Isn't it, though? They should never do something like that. How awful. I I mean, I hope they learned their lesson after they got concussions and stuff. I I think something like that is just, I don't know. There's certain things to me that just are the complete disrespect factor. Once again... I know people will disagree with me, but them running around and yelling and telling the spirit it will come out with your bad self with it, it's no different than what Zach Bagans does. And that's what, that is the only reason I don't like him. Mm-hmm. I don't care that he gets possessed every time he walks into a house. Yeah. I don't care that he's a liar. I'm sure a lot of the other paranormal investigators on TV aren't exactly on the up and up on what they're saying. 
and and what happens in a house on video. I'm just saying, but he just is very disrespectful. That's why I don't like him. Has nothing to do with him as a person. Right. Has nothing to do with the show. Has nothing to do with anybody on the show. Mm-hmm. I just think that's that's a wrong thing to not only do but to teach people. To, How yeah. many people out there now because they have seen him do it have walked into a house and been that disrespectful? No, you can't do that. So. Well, I think we need to make that our mission is to go to that gravesite. I want to go, yeah. and I want to take flowers and apologize for those jerks. I wonder if any of that's been fixed. I hope so. Now, we're, we're also taking in consideration that this story is true. I know, and that's, that's worse. That's no, the- I'm saying that we don't know 100% that this story is true. We know this gentleman said it's true. We don't know that. I mean, we could go there and find out there's not a knocked over headstone at all. Well, you how long ago was this then? I mean, I, they kind of probably well, fixed I, it by now. I don't know, but, well, they don't fix a lot of those headstones because they're hard to fix when they're that old. But you would know because you can see like when we were at the cemetery up mm-hmm. in uh, Pennsylvania in Philly that some of them had been fixed and you can see the crack, but yeah. you can tell they were fixed. Wow. That breaks my heart. It really does. It makes me want to cry. But I'd like to check it out. Yeah, we should do that and pay our respects because I can't stand people sometimes that be so mean. I agree. Huh. <sighs> Well, with that being said, let's talk some Bigfoot with T.S. Martin and Mel Cobb. Hey, guys, I got special guests as we've had uh, on these Wednesday episodes, and I'm, and they just seem like they keep getting better and better. This may be the first guest we've had on in probably over a year where cryptids are involved. You know my feelings on cryptids. I don't do a lot of it. Not that I don't believe. I'm just not always that fascinating because I do believe in it, which makes no sense because we do all these ghost stories and I believe in that too. So it really doesn't matter. Regardless, I've got author T.S. Mart and the first ever creature designer, Mel Cobb, joining us tonight. Ladies, thank you so much for taking your time out to come visit our little group. Yeah, thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. So originally, one of uh, your people—I like saying that—you got people. One of your (laughs) people, one of your people, reached out and said, "Hey, there's a book coming out. It's like a year down the road. Would you be interested in giving a little blurb or just mentioning it?" And I was like, "I can do better than that. Let's get them on the air. Let's get you know our our guys." listener wise love cryptid stuff we don't do enough of it so if i've got people that i deem to be experts in the field at least enough to write a book on it and (laughs) to to be a part of of cryptid world then that's who i want to have on here because you're going to do a lot better job on telling some of these stories than what i would ever do justice in so let's talk a little bit tammy let me start with you tammy is t.s mart She's related to Kay, as she told me. So, <laughs> but not Wall. But yeah, but not Wall. They don't. They don't get along. Family feuds like Hatfield and McCoys. <laughs> Tammy, tell me about Cryptid World. Well, Cryptid World is a family-friendly organization, or very small organization, and we we like to provide family-friendly products like the books, obviously, short stories, creature designs. We have a cryptid of the month, mainly our website, which houses all of this stuff. We do some coloring pages as well, mm-hmm. stickers, mm-hmm. and then we all ha- we have our social platforms where we reach out and talk about cryptids and do different articles and blog. Legend tripping too. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically what cryptid world is right now. And we just hope to see it growing as the years go by. That's awesome. So is that cryptidworld.com? Correct. Okay. Mel Cobb. Yes. There has to be a story behind that name. Well, you know, it, it really started out as an idea. I, I thought like, you know, Mel Cobb sounds like macabre. Mel Cobb would be kind of cool of a mobster name. So when I started my art page, I made it Mel Cobb. It, my art's not macabre at all. It's creatures. No, I don't. I disagree with that because if you looked at her post that she put up on Instagram today, the very first picture, it's quite macabre, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> not all of it's macabre. But, well, I, in October, I did this uh, thing um, on my Instagram called Cryptober, which is every day of October, you draw a cryptid, a different cryptid each day. And so I had people reaching out to me, you know, every day. And I got one that this one person said, hey, Mr. Cobb, I have a question. <laughs> and it's like, hmm, interesting. And so I text uh, my mom here and I was like, Mel Cobb, that could be a name. That could be my pseudo name. <laughs> and uh, at first I was joking, but then I really thought about it. And I was like, that's going to be really cool. So it kind of just stuck. A lot of her following on Instagram is uh, our younger people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mr. Cobb. Yeah, so I so I have my uh, low key mobster name. <laughs> well, your parents, Ma Cobb and Pa Cobb, must be proud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for for the most part. <laughs> now, the book we're going to get to at the end, okay. since it's it's still got a little bit of ways to go, but we're going to talk about what the book involves and, and a little bit about how people can kind of keep track and follow up on when the release dates are. Tammy, what got you into cryptids? What got us to the point to where you're now doing books, you've got cryptid world, all that. It seems to be progressing as a a business. Mm -hmm. But what got you into cryptids? Did you have any personal experiences or was it just something that you just had a fascination with? Well, this girl right here, (laughs) she's Mm -hmm. kind of drugged me along uh, (laughs) with her. So I don't know why my kids are the way they are. Does anybody? She has always loved cryptids. She's the youngest. She has always loved them. I've always been a writer, but never in the fantasy field or even, you know, the cryptid field or monsters. Not that I didn't like it, um, because I like just about everything. And I think that that was the key, is that when I saw her interest in this, and then I, I started, we started writing and working together. It just was a natural flow for me. So cryptids don't come naturally to me, but I have grown to really enjoy the field. What is your favorite cryptid story? Is there one that stands out above the other? Is there a certain cryptid that just fascinates you more than other cryptids? Well, maybe it's my, we live in Ohio, and maybe it's my Ohio pride. I don't know, but I sure do love the Loveland Frogman. And I don't know if it's because I love the little town of Loveland and those people are so fond of their cryptid or or what it is, if it's because it's on the Miami River or the little Miami River, which is so beautiful. And, you know, we we did some legend tripping there and did some kayaking and just really, really enjoyed it. I just the whole atmosphere. Well, I, I travel through that area all the time. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm always up around uh, Miami and Middletown and Hamilton and uh, Loveland and that whole area. So okay, okay, yeah, yeah very familiar. So 
Mel, what about you? What has stoked your interest? You've obviously been an interest in a, for a long time in the cryptids. Which one stands out to you? Well, I'm, I'm going to be basic here. And I'm going to have to say Bigfoot because there's there's just nothing like Bigfoot. The the design of Bigfoot is it's so believable, but yet it's quite you know far out there enough to to be mysterious and to be outlandish. You know, it's design of Bigfoot. It's just it's so well built, and there's just nothing like there's just nothing like him out there other than Bigfoot himself. You know, <laughs> Big, Bigfoot is honestly the the why we got into this business. It's Bigfoot that you brought us everything. into yeah. this business. When I, for my eight, uh, 19th birthday, she, uh, TS wrote me a um, short story for Bigfoot. It kind of got, got us through some really rough patches in our lives. And so when that turned in, that started the whole, what we call Belight Outcast Legends, which is the novel length books based off of the short stories, based off that Bigfoot short story. And so that he really jump-started this whole cryptid world journey we're on. And so I think that also plays why he's so special to me, I guess. When Mel was 19, she was living in China, and we had just gone through a really difficult time. I was living in the United States, and so I wrote her this story, but it really had a lot to do with the conflict that was going on within our home and our life at that time. And when, when she moved back to the States, we decided to turn that short story into a novel. And that was about three years ago. Mm -hmm. So is it safe to say that the short story that you wrote was more or less like a healing situation between the two? I think the whole cryptid business has been a healing for us. From that novel, we wrote two more, and then it just kind of snowballed from there with with a lot of other working mm -hmm. together. It's not a healing between us two, but it's like um, how we cope with the hardships that are happening around us. Okay, that um, makes sense. Yeah, and that doesn't mean us closing ourselves off in the house, even though we do <laughs> spend a lot of time away from other people. Yeah, <laughs> who knows if it's healthy or not? It's just the life of an artist. We, we think we're healthy. Yeah, <laughs> we swear. So let me ask you this: when the let's say the uh, the the book that's going to be coming out next year is that a a fiction or nonfiction story? It's nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And that came up, that came about from our agent who came to us and said uh, he had just talked to this editor at Indiana University Press who was looking for a line of cryptid books. Would we be interested? And this is has this has been Mel's dream mm-hmm. is to illustrate and write about cryptids. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean when I say she just drug me right along because I'm the writer side of it and right. research. What's the most fascinating cryptid story? That you've heard now, obviously, like you love the Loveland Frogman, and that's right, right. that's a cool story. But that also has a regional, you know, aspect that's near and dear to your heart. Mm-hmm. Right? What stories stand out to you? Like, oh my God, this is the coolest cryptid story ever! Wow, there are so many. There are so many. I, I really like the stories that have historical context. Mm-hmm. Um, like you take uh, a Jersey Devil. Mm-hmm. And there, there's so much historical context behind that, that critter. Um, I could talk all day about that subject. He's, he's a big part of our Sky Monsters book. And so then tagging right on to, to the Jersey Devil then is the Thunderbird, which is just, not only does the Thunderbird have such rich Native American culture, plus pop culture, 
But let's let's stay on that for a second then, because we've done a little bit on Thunderbirds in the past, not a whole lot. Give me your breakdown on Thunderbirds in general. Obviously, they're mainly Native American culture, but give me a breakdown on your thoughts on actual Thunderbirds. Did they exist? What do you think they are? Could they mm-hmm. be pterodactyls? What What's your thoughts on Thunderbirds in general? Well, first off, do they exist? And and the way that I would tackle that is, you know, obviously I have not seen them. A lot of people have not seen them, but a lot of people have. And so there's no way that I can say, oh, they don't exist when so many people have seen something. Birds can be very high in the sky. They can um, definitely, there can be an illusion involved. I don't know. I'm sure some of those airplane shadows on the ground. I'm sure some of those things come into play. So I, so then I look at, is, is it plausible? Could it be plausible? So when I look at that, there are, are there are three different types of, I'm going to say three and I may change my mind. I, I can't, <laughs> it's kind of late. <laughs> uh, you know, there are the, the, the pteranodons, so extinct flying reptiles, do they exist? And a lot of people think so. So that's one category of Thunderbird. The Native Americans in the Great Plains, they would have seen these fossils in the fossil bed and these giant birds, so to speak. So they were called Thunderbirds by a certain group of Native Native Americans and even uh, Native Americans who lived in the Southwest. And then you have the Thunderbird, Native American, like I would say, like a traditional raptor style Thunderbird. But the thing about Native American culture is that the uh, Thunderbird is, is half man, half spirit, and there's a lot of spirituality and legend tied in with the meaning behind Thunderbird. They are, there are also tribes that follow the patterns of the giant birds and have named landmarks after them and cliffs, nests, things. I can't think of any specifically off the top of my head, but they pay tribute to the Thunderbird because of, you know, it brings rains, brings nourishment and brings destruction. So there's a lot of respect that the Native Americans have for the Thunderbird on a uh, spiritual level. And then there are Teratorns um, that once lived that were uh, massive birds. A, a lot of people in Pennsylvania see Teratorns in the, what is that, the Black Forest that's made up of many different other forests that's in it. Pennsylvania? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it is. But there are a lot of sightings. So that's the third type of, of Thunderbird then, that is just a, an actual animal that migrates and that people see at different times of the year. But there probably aren't a lot of them. Yeah, you were talking about the Jersey Devil. And, and mm-hmm. um, you know, you talk about what what could possibly be seen that, that might be this, might be that. But, you know, that I can't think of the name of the bat, but there's this the bat that they show all the time that's got like a horse head to it. And it looks like the spitting image of what everybody describes the Jersey Devil right. being. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It does. It, and it is a scary looking thing. That's like a little monster. And there's not many photos of it either, or even uh, videos of it. So, I mean, I could un- I could definitely understand how the, the Jersey Devil may be that thing. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Or how people might see that, except that bat is not common definitely to this region common. at all. Can't, yeah. I don't think it can really survive I in can't imagine that it could, New Jersey. Unless it, you know, has nourishment. But I think that comes from tropical regions. Very yeah. warm climates. Mm-hmm. But it just goes to show, though, that there could be something else out there 
that yeah, is mistaken, sure. even if it's not that particular one. So, I mean, but yeah, there's there's all kinds of of hiding places for cryptids. There's no doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So let's talk a little bit about the book. Tell us a little bit about the book. It's called The Legend of Bigfoot, Leaving His Mark on the World. Is this going to be like a multi-storied book? Is this like a, a, a look at all these different encounters and then putting it into uh, how it fits into culture today? Or give me an idea of what the book is. Yeah, there there is some. There are some encounters, but our book is really, it's a one-stop shop for Bigfoot fans of any kind or any age. We talk about myths, personal stories. A lot of those personal stories are uh, older uh, stories, not necessarily present day. We talk about the pulp culture. We feature over 80 images that showcase uh, the mark Bigfoot has left on this world. We also have how many profiles of I think that there are about 40. 40, I would say 40. Big, different Bigfoot yeah, that we've so, profiled. So, yeah, um, where my illustrations come in, my creature designing comes in in these books is that I design, like, the bust, the head silhouette of, a, of the Bigfoot of each region and each Bigfoot that has been spotted. Most of them, yeah. Yeah. Most of them, yeah. And then we get into the Bigfoot culture and how the community has grown and evolved over the years. So it's kind of like a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. It's but, an entertainment book. It's not it's not really a field guide or, or anything. Yeah. It's it's uh, solely yeah. entertainment for fun. Yeah, we don't really call ourselves cryptozoologists. Mm-hmm. You do become an expert for when you're a writer, you become an expert for what you're writing about mm-hmm. in that moment. <laughs> right. And, and you learn a lot. This book is more for entertainment purposes. But mm-hmm. yes, there there's a history and legends section that has stories and uh I have one that I'll share with you in a little bit. This is one of my favorites from one of the creepiest, I think. From Both of you on this one. What do you think Bigfoot actually is? You said there was 40 different profiles in your book. So each one looks a little bit different, but I'm sure a lot of similarities. You know, there's a thousand different scenarios and, and theories of what Bigfoot is. Everything from an extraterrestrial to coming in from a different dimension to, you know, a cryptid. Where do you guys sit on what Bigfoot or this Bigfoot type of creature is? Well, we actually, the first section of our book is called What is Bigfoot? And we go through each one of those um, scenarios, scenarios or ideas like supernatural entity, a paranormal entity, a monster. What would it look like if Bigfoot were an animal? What would he have to be? What what? rules of of nature would he have to follow to be an animal and we go so we go through each of those those scenarios answering those questions but on a personal level i think a lot of a person's worldview and their belief system tie into what they how they perceive cryptids and um so an answer to that it's hard for me with bigfoot I, i so would love to believe that he's like a physical animal but i also have a hard time believing we wouldn't have seen him. Um, but I, but there are a lot of places for him to hide. <laughs> so I believe that people are seeing something. I don't necessarily believe it's a physical animal. I don't, I don't necessarily believe it's a myself personally from another world. For me, that, that leaves, you know, possibly something that's of a spiritual nature, maybe. That's kind of where, where I'm at today. So how about you, Mel? I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm definitely on the same 
fence as you are. It's, it's really hard to tell because Bigfoot is such a big creature. So for him, you know, there, people see bears, but they don't see him every day, you know. So there's definitely room there where the Bigfoot could survive. Could. <laughs> I've read some stories and instances where, you know, it the, the Bigfoot story is a bit contrived. And when you're so close to the subject of Bigfoot, it's really hard to not be biased on one side, you know, one side. <laughs> it's hard. It's it's really hard. <laughs> because sometimes you just want to believe because it's fun. No, I get that. I 100% get that. There are some amazing ideas out there. The people's minds there are so much smarter than I am, you know, scientifically looking at electromagnetic theories and you know, how the fur and bending light. And it's just amazing the things that people think about. And I love thinking about those things. And I love exploring possibilities. And I think that all of us should do that. And we should ask questions. And we shouldn't just accept, you know, what one person says. Tammy, you said you had a Bigfoot story that you were going to share with us from the book. I do. It's, uh, have you ever heard of the Malacosa? I don't think I have. This is about a Spanish conquistador named Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. So it's about how he learned of the uh, Malacosa, and it's a true story. And he wrote this in his journals. He he went on this epic journey and wrote everything down. But I'm going to I'm going to try to read it to you here so that I don't leave out some of the important things. So it is called the Malacosa. And one of the earliest stories of the Deep South, to mention a Bigfoot-type creature, was recorded in Cabeza de Vaca's uh, personal journals about his epic journey into what is eastern Texas. He was born in Spain around 1492. In 1521, he enlisted as an officer in the Crown's army. Six years later, he embarked on an expedition with Panfilo de Navarres and 600 other men to explore the area of Florida. Because of a hurricane and other problems, the ship landed somewhere near Tampa Bay with only half their men and, and just a few of their supplies. The Appalachian tribe, who had promised to guide Navarres and his conquistadors to piles of gold in the, into enemy territory, he turned on the explorers and ambushed them. Plague and disease and hunger, or hunger and disease plagued the Spaniards, and they regrouped as best they could. They searched the Appalachian camps for gold and food, but the Indians had abandoned their homes and left nothing behind. Navarres and his men returned to the ship, only to find that it had also disappeared. Out of options, the Spaniards built rickety boats with a plan to cross the Gulf and seek refuge in Mexico. It was a good idea, but the Gulf can be a nasty place sometimes. They drifted on and off the land for several months. At one point, a local tribe invited them to share in a feast, but it was a trick. The Indians ambushed them and captured a few of the Spaniards. After several rescue attempts that resulted in unsuccessful skirmishes, the conquistadors had no choice but to leave their imprisoned men behind. On the Gulf's temperamental waters, a storm broke up their small, pathetic fleet. Several boats sank, while others crashed onto the east coast of Texas. Cabeza de Vaca's crew washed up on an island thought to be present-day Galveston Island. They surrendered to a large Native American group of Coahuitacans. I think that's how you say that. Coahuitacan. 
Cabeza de Vaca and several others were enslaved, abused, and humiliated. Occasionally, they proved their worth through the use of herbs and healing techniques. At some time, the Spaniards escaped to a friendlier tribe where they were revered for their medicinal abilities. Invited to stay with the tribe, the Spaniards remained for eight months, recording many details and facts about the natives' way of life. During this time, the men were told the story of the bad thing, which Cabeza de Vaca called Malacosa. According to the tribe, about 15 years before Cabeza de Vaca's arrival, a hairy man-like beast attacked their village at night. The creature would sometimes come during dances, sneaking his way into the village unnoticed. The tribe once offered Malacosa food if he'd leave them alone, but he always refused. Smaller than the average human, Malacosa was strong enough to lift an Indian dwelling into the air and toss it to the ground. He'd, he disguised himself in animal skins like an Indian man. Other times, he dressed like a female. Just before the Malacosa entered a home, a red glow would appear around the doorway. Once inside, he would choose a victim. With a sharp stone knife the length of two palms, he would slice open the Indian's side and remove a small section of intestine, toss it onto the fire, and then close the wound up by placing his hand over the cut. He would then make three cuts across the victim's wrist, causing them to bleed. But then he would use his power to seal up the cuts. When asked where he came from, Malakosa pointed to the rent in the earth. After torturing the Indians for some time, Malakosa wandered off and never returned. Cabeza de Vaca refused to believe in a magic-carry beast who did bad things, until several of the tribal men lined up and one by one showed him their scars as they talked about their encounters with Malakosa. This physical evidence and the level of detail in the stories convinced Cabeza de Vaca and his companions that Malacosa was more than a phantom. There was no way these people would or could make up such an extensive lie. Devoutly Catholic, Cabeza de Vaca was certain the devil had set Malacosa. He set about instructing the Indians in the ways of Christianity. He informed them that a belief in the Christian God would ward off future visits from the satanic creature. And that's that one. <laughs> Happy Halloween. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just a couple of days late, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so look really cool. So ladies, take a few seconds, tell everybody how they can follow you on social media, how they can keep up with the progress of the books. And you've got another book you said hopefully comes out not too long after the, the Bigfoot books. And then that one you said is going to be on flying cryptids, flying yeah. cryptids. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I don't know a lot of the flying, flying cryptids other than I guess Thunderbirds would probably be included in that. And obviously you got Mothman and you've got the uh, Jersey devil. And I guess you could probably include uh, was it the, the black bird of Chernobyl. Other than that, I don't think I know of any flying cryptids. <laughs> Surprisingly, well, there's a lot. I just, I just today finished up proofreading 39 profiles. So, <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and I left out a few. I left out a few. Yeah. So there are quite a few. So go ahead, Mel, and then okay. uh, Cryptid World uh, at Cryptid World on Instagram and Twitter. And then on the topic of Cryptid World. Oh, on the topic of Cryptid World, <laughs> we have a newsletter. You can sign up on our website, and every month we put out. Uh, some different articles. Mel puts out a cryptid tidbit. So last month we uh, had a cryptid tidbit on Owlman and we featured owls. And uh, so there's digital art and there's articles, photography. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and then we also feature a fascinating creature from nature. So on owls, we were talking about their bio-inspiration of silent flight along with that. So we do that each month. Then that's a way to keep up on our progress with our books and what's and our new projects and what's going on, like Cryptober, Melissa did, and, or Mel did on Instagram. So And then uh, for my art or creature designing, you can just follow me at MelCobb2. And then we have Cryptid World Instagram. Fantastic. Ladies, we appreciate you taking some time to, to sit with us and tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on in your world. It was fascinating. And I'm sure everybody will flock to cryptidworld.com and kind of check out what's going on with you guys. Yep, all kinds of stuff. Thank you Free for having us on. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. So that was very interesting. That's uh, um, an interesting take on Thunderbirds. What's your take on Thunderbirds? Everybody's heard about the bird, the bird, 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 bird. Everybody's heard about the bird. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure those guys will love how you completely destroyed their song. Ah, oh, I know I did, didn't I? I kind of had the thing going. Yeah, yeah. You look like Peter Griffin. Uh. Oh, my Lanta! You just said I look like Peter Griffin. I will punch you up in your face. I frankly love Peter Griffin. Um, Don't you dare think, take that as an insult. Oh, uh, <laughs> that is an insult. They can't all be Megs. <sighs> Ew. What? I want to be Meg. You'd want to be Meg in real life. Why? That's Malakunas. Oh, that's right. I completely forgot that. I wish you were Meg in real life. Oh, I'm sorry I disappointed you. <laughs> hmm. I'm completely happy with you in real life. I wish you were, uh, what's that face? What's that guy's name? Married to Lisa Bonet. Lenny Kravitz? No. Pepper? <laughs> no. That hot, sexy well, dude with the scar in his eyebrow. What? I can't think of his name. Who are you talking about? Lisa Bonet. The only person I knew she was married to was oh. Lenny Kravitz. No. What is wrong with you? Wait till I show you who he's married to. Lisa Bonet. Yes. All right. All right well, we'll look and at these that These women later. out here will agree. Anyways, Ninja's barking his head off, so it's time to end this thing. Mm. <laughs> Love you guys. Talk to you later. Bye.